Nick, do you like our intro music? <laughs> I love our intro music. It's very bouncy. It is very bouncy. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to What Would My Shrink Say, a podcast where you get inside the heads of a couple psychologists and see life through their eyes. You'll never be the same. Todd. Yes, sir. What's the best thing you've learned from a client that surprised you? I like this question because I, I do think as a therapist, you learn a lot from your clients in, in, um, in lots of different ways. Um, but when I first heard this question, I thought about clients that I admired a lot um, and then kind of thought about, well, why is it that I admire them? What is it about our work together or, or their personality or whatever that I found appealing? You know, mm-hmm. And one client in particular um, I was treating for chronic pain and they had a very painful, um, condition, um, that, re- that treatment re- basically required them to receive these shots to deaden a nerve, but the shots went, the location of the shot and the size of the needle were really problematic. The, uh, it was basically through their growing area. Um, kind of, kind of back up into the buttocks area, but it came through uh, the growing, and it was a really long needle, and they would have to go in and get this needle inserted, and then this nerve would be found and located by the doctor, and then this nerve would be deadened. And as they described this process, and I and I talked to the doctor that was administering the process um, to see if we could refine how it was being done. It, I mean, I was constantly with that look that you have now on cringing. your face. Yeah, cringing Ugh. and like, oh my gosh. But um, through the course of our work together, what I quickly found was that although this client really did experience a really intense amount of pain with this procedure, they were incredibly grateful for it. Hmm. You know, because... Once the procedure was done, they kind of got their life back in a way that the pain wasn't as significant and they could walk and go do the things that they really enjoyed doing. And um, so quickly the the lesson of, you know, being willing and um, at times maybe even subjecting yourself to intense pain has a payoff. And that you can be grateful for that process at times. You don't have to lament it. Because, I, you know, every time the um, the schedule came up when this shot would come, I would have a reaction. You know, I'd come into the session going, oh, I just want to help them. But they, in a way, were like, hey, I get to go do that. You know, I'm going to feel better. And I was just always kind of in awe of like, wow, you're not, you know, terrified. And you're mm-hmm. not, you know, mad at the world for, you know, or the universe or whatever. Did, um, did you guys ever talk about what allowed them to do that like how did they how did they do like i i think if you see an example like that i would think like gosh how can i use this to help other clients and similar like what are they doing differently that helps them have that kind of attitude you know it boiled it really came down to their perception of like um you know you can lament this thing and we talked about this a lot you can lament this thing you can do that but what's your experience going to be like you know as you go into that session with your doctor or that procedure you know and um they would often just say, you know, I, I prefer to just be 
you know, happy about this and to focus on how I'm going to feel afterwards rather than the procedure itself. And, um, yeah, they just had this perception of the procedure itself as a good thing rather than um, dwelling kind of on the pain that was associated with this procedure. Yeah. yeah. There's one of my favorite books is, um, it's called Wrapped, R-A-P-T. It's by a woman named Winifred Gallagher. Um, I just read it pretty recently. But it, she's a journalist and she got a, a pretty advanced a, a diagnosis of a pretty advanced stage cancer diagnosis. Um, and it's, it's a little bit about her, her experience, but it, it, it prompted her to do all this research and conduct all these interviews on the topic of attention for that same reason. Why do some people in the face of major objective adversity, how are some people able to kind of refocus their acknowledge the fact that they're going through hell but refocus and keep their attention on other things rather than kind of dwelling on adversity and and she sort of the the thesis or the the argument she's making in the book is that the ability to skillfully manage our attention is the most important ability we have as human beings Mm. to be able to control what we want to focus on and what we don't want to focus on um, and that, so it sounds like you, this client is a good example of that, of, of really having practiced that skill of saying, I could easily focus and lament, um, this awful thing, objectively awful thing, but they found a way to keep their attention on other things like gratitude for, um, the fact that there was a procedure at all that could help them. Right. Right. Well, and, and, and this client was definitely aware of the pain. Right. Didn't, didn't sugarcoat it. I mean, we did have lots of discussions about what this was like for them. Um, and they were just able to kind of really hone in on the fact that this was, um, that, that this procedure gave them access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so this is le- much less uh, weighty. <laughs> but the first thing that came to mind when I heard this question was, I've so as soon as I started doing therapy, um, I, I've always had a whiteboard in my therapy offices. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My first one, way back in the beginning of grad school, happened to have one, and I just started using it all the time. I'll talk a little bit more about how, how I use it. But ever since then, if I had an office that didn't have a whiteboard, I fought tooth and nail to get myself a whiteboard. Mm-hmm. At one point, I even, I even bought my own because I, I had to have a whiteboard. Yeah. And it's because therapy often involves talking through either complicated ideas or situations that have a lot of moving parts mm-hmm. that are pretty, a lot of factors and a lot of, yeah, just a lot of pieces and variables. Sure. Um, and personally, I just have a really hard time keeping everything straight in my mind. <laughs> so when someone's talking about a really complicated situation, you know, they got in a huge fight with their spouse, say, um, everything from the different types of thoughts they were having to what emotions they were feeling to what the topic of the, the fight was about. And it just gets really, I have a hard time holding it all in my head. <laughs> so I have to go kind of write it all. I, sometimes I'll go write it out. Like this happened. And then there were these kind of thoughts and, and these emotions were going on. And honestly, it was, it started off mostly just for myself. Like I kind of needed to do this. Um, and I always felt kind of insecure about that early on. Like it felt like kind of a crutch and the way I was trained in grad school, that was kind of discouraged or looked down upon, like using a whiteboard in therapy. Um, 
But what I, as I started doing more and more therapy full time, I started getting lots of comments from clients that they really appreciated that and that they really, it was really helpful to them to see stuff written out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I learned was that not only is that helpful to me, but it's, it's really helpful to clients and, and really helpful to almost, I've never had a complaint about it. And I, I sometimes ask, like I'll check in with people to see like, am I doing this too much? Is this distracting or is this, I've never had a complaint and I frequently have positive comments about it. Um, and so that's been really surprising to me to learn that clients really like that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, do you use the whiteboard much? <laughs> All the time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I And, and. I I also think sometimes to an annoying degree. Yeah. Um, but but one thing I do usually is that once I'm kind of honing in on a client's pattern, mm-hmm. um, and I feel fairly confident that I know what's going on, I'll have them use them the whiteboard. Yeah. yeah. I, I I often you know will ask them, you draw the model now. Right. And, and um, I think there's where I've gotten more feedback about like. I'm glad that I'm doing this because it, it it's also kind of teaching me at the same time, and and it's different. They, I, I mean, it's a pretty simple process that I use, I think. But um, clients will often say like, "Oh, I, you know, when you made me get up here and do it, it was a little bit unnerving because it wasn't as easy as I, you know, yeah. I just watched you do it for a while and I was like, oh yeah, I got it.' And um, but it it definitely I think is a teaching tool as well when they're able to kind of draw their own pattern out and kind of examine it from that kind of 10,000 foot view. So in addition to a teaching tool, I I think it's also a, it's a form of reflection and validation, which are two core skills in therapy. Like they're the two, you know, intro to being a therapist. (laughs) What the two of the skills you, you learn right off the bat is you need to be able to kind of reflect back to what people, to people, what they're saying so that you're on the same page. And also just to validate how people are feeling without going right to teaching or problem solving or something like that. And so often that's, we're taught to do that verbally, right? You literally reflect back via your voice, but I found that it's been really helpful to do that visually, right? That, that it can be like another layer of understanding for it show. It can show your client therapeutically that you're, you're understanding them or at least that you're trying to understand them. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I, I mean, drawing it out on the whiteboard also helps fill in the gap sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a, when you draw out a model of like that thought process and you're looking for like, well, what did you think in this minute? And they're like, I have no idea. Right. And you can kind of say, well, how did you feel? And they're like, well, I was really mad. Yeah. Why would you have been mad? Well, and it, and it's immediate like, well, because they think I'm an idiot and you're like, oh, okay, I can fill in the blank here. Um, and so sometimes it's kind of a prompt and, and at times. Yeah. So, so that's mine. I, I learned to be okay with, with the whiteboard, to not feel insecure about it. Right. So I also have something that I frequently learn from that's not, um, and I, I don't want to f- sound like a jerk when I talk about this, but I, I, I sometimes learn a lot from clients in, in, a, in a form of like what not to do. <laughs> if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes a client will kind of draw out a philosophy or a pattern, um, and maybe it, maybe it's relevant to me for some reason. Maybe I, I share a similar 
problem that they do. You know, that's not uncommon. Um, but sometimes, you know, a client can go over something and I can say, oh, wow, I can, from this point of view, I can see that why that's not working, you know? Um, and so, um, more often than not, you know, it's not, it's not, um, it's not maybe something that they teach me. Um, although, although clients teach me things all the time that are amazing, I think, but, but sometimes it's just really apparent, like this philosophy does not work. This concept or the way that they're employing this emotion is not functional and keep that in mind, you know? I think the same thing is true for me of specific behaviors. So I, I, I remember one time very specifically saying a, a client of mine who repeatedly had this um, request of her husband, which is she wished he would be more physically affectionate in small ways. So the example she would give is that if she was at the counter, like doing something, if he would just come by and give her a peck on the cheek, doesn't even have to say anything, right. just do some small little small, thing like that. Right. And it, uh, poor thing, like it, it just never happened. Like this, she, she talked to him about it and she was, oh, it was always a thing and she always tried to work on that. And, and I think that the, um, like the emotion, like the sadness I felt for her that she couldn't get such a simple request met makes me really mindful or, or helps me be a little bit more mindful anyway to do that particular thing from time to time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so again, she wasn't teaching me anything, but I, that's something I learned. That's something I learned and that it, I, it helped me be more mindful yeah. of that. You kind of noted that as yeah. like, that might it, be it's helpful. more on the front burner for me because of my experience in therapy and see where my mind went was, wow, you know, you can't get fixated on something like that as a criteria for your happiness. <laughs> you know, like if that's not happening in a relationship, you know, then to to really kind of fixate on that is like I'm going to be really unhappy unless this happens. Well, she, I um, mean. Oh, I'm not saying she did that because yeah. I don't know your client at all. Right. But I, I can definitely see tendencies sometimes for clients to really fixate on this has to happen in order for me to feel good about mm-hmm. my relationship. Yeah. Um, and in the event that you've talked to this person and pleaded with this partner to pick those things up and increase their, you know, um, their occurrence, then I think the strategy becomes like, okay, well, how do I let go of this criteria yeah, in a way? After, right. If, or depending on how important it is, I guess, uh, definitely. Um, yeah. And that yeah. was just for background info. It, it was, that wasn't a major topic of our, our therapy and she wasn't, that wasn't the core thing that gotcha. was bothering her, but it was just, it was sad in like a kind of a melancholic way. Like just like, yeah, she's probably never going to get this. And that that's kind of sad because it's, yeah. it's not a big thing. Like it's like a true empathy moment where you're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's like horrible that it's you not, really want that. That right? thing isn't messing, you know, that's not completely overwhelming her life. And it, but it, that like poignancy of that kind of little sadness that I felt for her helped me like that helps me. I feel like that helps me be better in my, in my relationship. So yeah. um, I think I learn a lot from clients. I think, I think sometimes there's general overlap between, um, you know, maybe my pattern and theirs, maybe mine's mm-hmm. not as severe or maybe mine, but, but there's overlap and, and I can definitely often kind of look to my clients and see like, well, how do they do that? You know? Um, and I often do that when my clients come in with like a success, I spend a lot of time saying, well, how did that happen? And 
let's let's really do an analysis and see mm-hmm. all the moving parts and how that was successful. Um, but I've often, you know, been in a situation and gone, oh, this is just like my client and what they do that was so successful. And like, oh yeah, here's what they did. And yeah, um, that's one thing. I, I mean, to be a therapist, I think you have to be a people person. Yeah, no, nah, no, you don't have to. Be. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> sounds like you've interacted with a few therapists yeah yeah (laughs) you would think people people person isn't exactly the word you you use to describe (laughs) you would think but i I generally just enjoy people and and their experiences and you can learn from just about anyone you know and and so i think i do learn a lot from my clients I, i i don't know the the significancy level there but um yeah often learning from a client i think so I have one more. I have a, a a very specific, concrete thing that I learned from a client that has had a major impact on the way I practice, okay. actually. Um, so I, I had a client who I was, this was early on, um, and the client had a, they came in with a driving phobia. So they'd been referred by another clinician who had diagnosed them with a, a phobia of driving. Um, cause they were getting a lot of anxiety when they drove and then they were, um, like avoiding driving in certain situations and contexts. Um, and as we were talking about this, one of the things that they pointed out, they said, you know, it's not really driving that I'm afraid of. I'm not even afraid of crashing my car or like hurting anyone or doing anything bad. It's just whenever I start driving, I feel awful. Like I start getting really anxious whenever I start driving. Okay. So what what this highlighted to me is that oftentimes what looks like a phobia, which is a, a fear, an irrational fear of a very specific thing, you know, so a spider phobia or a you know fear of enclosed spaces or heights or or driving theoretically. What, what looked like and had even been diagnosed as a fear of a specific thing, driving, wasn't actually fear of that thing. It was fear of how they were going to feel as a result of driving. So, and what that is, is panic disorder. <laughs> so <laughs> panic is when you have fear of your own anxiety response. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, so what was happening with this client is they were driving and, and driving had become a cue or a prompt for anxiety and they would start to get their heart would start racing they'd start to get they'd start sweating their breathing would get fast they'd even start to feel a little bit lightheaded you know common symptoms of higher levels of anxiety um and what what they pointed out to me was that the thing they were actually afraid of was feeling that way right and how badly that felt and maybe what would happen as a result of feeling that way Mm Um, and driving was just a cue for that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, and what I've found, that distinction is super, super important because the, and I don't know what your experience with this is, but the vast majority of clients I see who either come in with a phobia diagnosis or think of themselves as having a phobia do not have a phobia. They're not afraid of specific things. They're afraid of how things make them feel. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of their own anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, and that's important because the way you treat panic effectively is often different than the way you treat phobias. Because in a phobia, you, you expose someone increasingly to the thing they're afraid of, mm. spiders or mm-hmm. whatnot. 
But in panic, often the most effective treatment is you expose them to those feelings of anxiety that they're most afraid of. Mm. And so it, it that's a thing that, I, and I, I was not aware, I mean, I, I knew those two things were different diagnoses, obviously, mm-hmm. but in a clinical way, I, 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 it really helped me probe more closely when someone came in with a phobia diagnosis, is this really a phobia or is this panic? Because it really changes the way you work with someone. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just, that was like totally shocking and really, really helpful. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that they that they were kind of insightful about that. Yeah. That difference. Yeah. Get the diagnosis right. <laughs> well, it's an <laughs> or, easy... Or even the antecedents, you know, because if you don't have those right, you're treating a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Interesting. So... You know, I'm continually in awe of how clients, or how we all, I guess, choose our own emotional experience. You know, if you're unwilling to accept one emotion then by default you accept another sometimes. Hmm. That sounds profound. What do you mean? Give me an example. Well, if this client was like avoiding driving, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, I, I, I'm unwilling to accept anxiety or feel anxiety. So then I'll feel constant frustration because I can't drive and I, and mm-hmm. I have to get rides and I have to do this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. That, and so he's much more willing if I'm spit, I don't know anything about your client. Okay. So, um, but in that case he's trading, um, his anxiety for frustration. Yes. And he's more willing to tolerate the frustration than he is to tolerate the anxiety. Well, and in this case, it was, frustration was a part of it, but it it's often the case that not willing to tolerate temporary high levels of anxiety right, right. in order to eliminate almost persistent low to medium levels of anxiety. Right. Um, in the, so it's kind of a short-term, long-term thing. Well, and, and I have clients all the time, because you, you do anxiety, I do a lot of depression, but it's like, you know, I, I'll have clients that will continually um, choose their frustration or um, sadness, let's say, for the feelings of somebody else. Like, I'm so allergic to feeling guilty that I will be continually frustrated and unhappy um, I'll choose that experience over feeling guilty. So th- there's some action that they probably should take for their own well-being that they're not taking because they're worried that they're going to feel guilty. That they might hurt somebody. Yeah, and or, then feel guilty yes, about it. Yes, and so it's like and I'll, they're willing I'll, to be. So I'll endure frustration and you know suppress my own desires forever in order to not feel guilty. And 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 so it's a, yeah, that's just something. I'm always kind of, we should talk about this as another podcast mm-hmm. maybe as a topic, but that's, that's always kind of, it all boils down to that sometime. Yeah. You know? What, what are, trade-offs what, are you really making? What emotion are you, are you trading mm-hmm. and why? And are you sure you want to keep doing that? And sometimes even pointing that out to a client, like you're trading this experience for this experience. And is that, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting process. Mm-hmm.